You're listening to Nobody's Podcast, where we share the remarkable stories of ordinary people leading extraordinary lives. Join us as we explore success, passion, and living life to the fullest. The journey begins now. This is Nobody's Podcast, and today we're here to talk about success and satisfaction. We're here today talking with Dr. Martin Monti, professor at UCLA of neuroscience. Welcome, Dr. Martin. Yeah, thank you for having me. What we're here today to address is something that you are extremely prepared for. We're going to talk about the brain and the mind. The mind seems to be more like, in physics, a non-local field. You can't touch it. You can't hold it in your hand. But we know it exists. We know the brain exists. It's there. We've seen it. We're here to address that. I'd like you, we'd like you to, to define what is the brain. At the same time, help us with the definition of what is the mind. Now, the mind, we know it exists due to its effects. As we know, gravity exists due to its effects. We can see what it causes, and we see the cause, the, the effects of the, the mind as it elaborates information. So my question is, let's start with, What's the brain? Yeah, that's a that's a rich and complex question. I think if you if you open the book, um, you have a textbook from any undergraduate, let's say introductory class to maybe psychology, maybe neuroscience. I think you would find that the brain is um, some hundred billion neural neural cells and and many other types of cells that together through the flow of ions and molecules and and different types of connections together give rise to what you and I call the mind. Uh, I think this is sort of what you would find in, uh, in a textbook. And, and, and it would tell you that the mind is that, that set of processes that, that you and I have uh, ongoing all the time and that are really the result of a species or maybe multiple species, uh, one after the other, developing in a very spe- specific environment. So probably a good way of summarizing that is that the mind is, is the strategy that this particular species has evolved to cope with the complexity of what's around us. And of course, you know, as I say this, you might feel that there's, there's so much more to the mind, particularly for me speaking, and oh, there's so much more. The mind is, is, is me, is who I am, is how I feel, is how I see the environment, is the experience of you know, hearing something. We, or, we use a word today, sight, you know, the sight another synonym for the mind. Psych, again, is a Greek word, like so many other Greek words in medicine and science. It's a Greek word that can be associated with the soul. Psych, modern word to say always the same thing. Mind, always the same thing. You said the mind is who we are. What's your interpretation of Descartes' cogido ergo sum? Well, I mean, that, that's, that's one point of view. And, and, and I think today... It's the point of view that most people have. If you were to go you know, out in the street and ask people, most people would tell you, even if they might not know that word, they would tell you that they're dualists. Like a couple of obvious examples. But you, know, you read the Odyssey, and one of the, sort of one of the clearest examples of this is that at some point, uh, Circe takes um, Ulysses' shipmates and, and puts them in pigs. And in, in fact, Homer says, much worse, 
she took their mind and put them in bodies of pigs. As I read this, and as people have read this through the centuries, nobody has a problem with that. In fact, nobody has a problem going to the movie theater and seeing the story of Tom Hanks being a child and, and suddenly waking up in the body of an adult. Nobody has a problem with that. It's, it's just so intuitive that there's a part of us that is just not made of flesh and of molecules and of cells. And that, in this point of view, can freely move around and it could be in a different body. And, and in fact, if you've seen The Exorcist, something else could inhabit my body and sort of displace my mind, oh, my, my consciousness. Examples are Body Snatchers, another film. There's, you know, again, we've had tons of examples of this in literature where minds are switched from one body to exactly. another. Exactly. In our culture, that is... That's standard. That's our, the standard position. However, the moment you go into the scientific domain, I think the dominant viewpoint would be that it's not quite that way. Obviously, it's very clear that the mind and the brain must be connected. I mean, a few obvious examples, but if I, if I drink wine, you know, which is very material, it's, it's a fluid and it's something you and I can touch. If I drink enough of it, my mind will be affected. And so how exactly did, did this really tangible fluid end up changing my mind? And of course, I, I can do the opposite because I, I can think through things and, and, and that might change sort of how I, you know, who I am or what I do, so can, can have an impact on the world. So if you go into academia, into the study of psychology, neuroscience, I think the dominant viewpoint, not exclusive, but dominant, would be that it's, it's not quite like what the Chartres said. It's that the mind is the brain. And, and there's nothing else to you but the action of, as I said, some hundred billion neurons that together make you who you are. And there's also a lot of evidence for that. I mean... But if we, if we look at the mind separate from the body, as you underlined with the, the um, examples that you gave in, in literature, if we look at... Let's look at a, an automobile, a machine. Okay, what's its job is to take us from point A to point B. How does it take us there? It can take us there in comfort. It can take us there uh, in the minimal necessary to take us there safely. All right, so not necessarily look at our comfort side, which is another aspect of our mind, that which we find comfortable. The car cannot drive itself yet, all right? It needs a mind. It doesn't have a mind. The driver sits in the car, okay, and uses the buttons and pedals and whatever necessary to make the car move. It uses the steering to direct the car in difficult situations. It has brakes in order to stop in case something that the mind perceives as detrimental or you know, threatening to the mind's existence, not threatening to the car's existence. Even when we worry about the car's existence, it's our mind projecting into the car. So much are we attached to this, this car, you'll have people say things like, I love my car, okay? Oh God, don't scratch it. People give them names. People give names to their car, yeah. I mean, look, look what Disney did with the Volkswagen Beetle. Okay, or the famous film Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Humanized, andromorphed. And it's car. so easy to do. 
it is it is just so deeply embedded in our culture this dualistic aspect where, where anything really at this point anything could have a feeling could have an an introspection could have an internal viewpoint and actually if you at least if you take undergraduates at uh, at research universities they will treat computers with the same fairness when they are when they're playing economic games against them they, they will treat them they will offer fairness to the computer much in the same way that they will offer fairness to you know, another individual so th- there's no doubt there's really no doubt that our culture is deeply dualistic what i'm trying to say is that our scientific culture our scientific approach on the other hand is what we call materialistic reductionism meaning we try to reduce everything to things that we can touch and so in, in neuroscience for example the approach is to to really view the mind as the result of the brain. And look, if you if you change the brain, I mean, there's no way around it. You will change the mind. There's a very famous case. This is the case of Finnis Gage. It was this, we're talking about the 1800s, if I remember correctly. This was a, a stellar worker in a, in a railroad enterprise. And one day there was an explosion that culminated with a, a large metal rod entering under his left cheek and, and sort of coming out the opposite side of his head now he survived the most interesting aspect from a neuroscientific point of view about this is that he was what his friend said no longer gauge he was no longer himself he had become a different person so we changed his brain and now suddenly his desires his impulses the things he wanted to do his ability to carry out plans now those were completely gone completely different so in this sense, at least we can change the mind and we can change who you are, what you love, what you want to do, how you want to go about in the world. So there's a lot of strong evidence, if you ask me, to say that although it feels to me so right to be dualistic from my internal point of view, to date, what I see in the data, what I see out there is that, um, is that my mind is uh, you know, who I am, my desires, my passions, my memories my what i fall in love with and, and who i do and who i don't that is really the result of molecules and, uh, and neurons so be it but science for a long time has been cause and effect we study through cause and effect we experiment you know to see if we we can repeat the phenomenon that which we've defined as a phenomenon you know the classic thing in order to define a phenomenon it has to happen at least three times once it happens the second time you sit there and wait for it to happen it does happen during a certain period of time the third time when it happens again then you've confirmed that it happens every certain amount of time under certain situations ergo you call it a phenomenon we try to repeat phenomenon to understand phenomena what is lightning what is electricity? Do I actually know what it is? No. But I can repeat it. I can create it. I can manipulate it. So I confirm that it exists. All right? Ancient man, to define lightning, andromorphed it. Created Zeus and Thor. You know, created these gods, saying that they were the launchers of lightning. What am I getting at? So science, 1800s, at war with religious belief, comes along and says, look, it's not that we want to disregard or not consider the religious belief. We want that as a reality. We'll accept it. But we're offering another truth. 
another reality. Our reality, we're going to learn it through experimentation. And finally, they were allowed to experiment, to define that reality. But even there, it was confined. To believe in that which we see, we can touch. And so the ongoing argument, does the mind exist? Is it just a product of the brain? Is it independent? A lot of fringe science argues these points. What's your take on that? To me, that is the hardest, but also the most interesting aspect of science. Like anything, science lives in a certain model, is capable of doing certain things. And then there are phenomena, which at least sort of prima facie, as people say, present themselves as just not sitting well with what we know, with what we think, with our models of how the world should or shouldn't work. And so the question, of course, there is, well, what are you going to do about it? And, and there, are, there are, of course, various ways. To me, the most beautiful example so far of this is the phenomenon of near-death experiences. So these are phenomena where people, when they find themselves in these very life-threatening situations, suddenly have an experience that is very unique. The, the most typical aspects of this experience would be to feel outside of your own body, uh, sometimes even looking at yourself from, from above. Other typical aspects of this phenomenology are seeing sort of a tunnel and, and a light at the end and maybe some shapes at the end, perhaps encountering familiar people or, or having a feeling of well-being. And so, of course, this phenomenology taken on its face would really be indicating, look, this is, even when your body's shutting down and your brain is shutting down, well, here's this rich world that exists outside of it. And so in the 1980s, and, and this is a book I read as an adolescent, it, it has really marked me a lot in terms of my thinking. It's a book by Raymond Moody Jr. And the title, I believe, is Life After Life. Or at least that's how it translates from the Italian version I read. And um, the argument that Moody was making is, look, people from completely different places, cultures that didn't talk to each other, have the exact same experience. How could you possibly explain that? It, it has to be that this is proof that there is something beyond our, our physical. There's something that remains of us beyond our pure physicality. And this actually has remained the prevalent understanding of near-death experiences for a very long time. Now, it has never sat well with modern neuroscience and modern science because you can't touch it you can't measure it where is it i can't see it i, I can't i can't repeat it i can't uh, turns out there's an alternative hypothesis that, that of course has only emerged with with neurosciences maturing uh, as its own science turns out you can actually manipulate the brain and recreate most of these phenomenologies for example this happened uh, during a neurosurgery when Olaf Blank, who I believe was mapping the cortex of a patient pre-resection, stimulated a small part of the parietal lobe and suddenly the patient said, I feel like I'm outside of my body. And, and so Olaf Blank manipulated the brain and suddenly you're starting to get this feeling exactly as you get in what people call near-death experiences or also out-of-body experiences. It is known from, from prior work that you can stimulate parts of the brain, you can trigger memories of songs and memories of events that have, have happened. In fact, it turns out that as your body uh, shuts down, for example, when people faint, one of the things that happen is that you get this sort of tunnel vision 
because the receptors in the middle of your retina just take much more energy to operate. And so they start shutting down. And as they shut down, you see this sort of a tunnel and, and, and you only see really dark and light. You, you don't see color because those are the receptors that have color. So this is one example in which there was this really interesting fringe phenomenon that could not possibly sit well with modern science and had one interpretation and then it got subject to what we now call accommodation. This fringe phenomenon got accommodated within the accepted science. And this is one possible outcome of studying the fringe. Of course, there might very well be... Alternate truths. Well, there might be other phenomena which maybe we'll never be able, that today sit at the fringe, that maybe we'll never be able to accommodate. Well, quantum physics at one time was fringe. Most theories, the heliocentric theory of, of how our, the solar system works, well, that was not only fringe, you would lose your head for it. <laughs> so I, I think the, the one thing we'd forget in science today is that just because, oh, Galileo, Galileo, well, well at that time, they didn't, had no idea what science was, and now we would never make a mistake like that. Well, well, that is something that I think we should all recognize, that we are human, and this is a beautiful journey, but the beautiful journey is made of successes and failures, and that's just part of it. And, but we should recognize it, and we should be slightly more humble, particularly in today's science, as we sort of approach and, and understand the And world. this comes to the topic of the podcast, success and satisfaction. Successes and failures. Our minds or brains are programmed into what we call confirmation bias. We look for confirmation to that which what we believe in. And we feel better when it's confirmed. And we don't feel as good when we're contradicted. But yet science here almost is in a contradiction of itself. It lives for contradictions. One of the first things that we're taught as scientists is don't marry your thesis. <laughs> you know, don't marry it. Because... A theory is as good until the next theory is born. Even Einstein is quoted to have said, a student, this student asked the question, what if the universe is the opposite of what Einstein had sustained? And he answered the student, I've brought you this far. You now, it's your job to take it a step further. Go forward. The, the, the idea of infinity. Knowledge is infinite. You know, how much knowledge do we actually have? in the amount of knowledge that is actually out there. An infinitesimal amount. Probably. You know, um, so we continuously learn. To go back to the fringe, quantum physics talks about, to simplify, ideas where old laws of physics are contradicted, and yet they're proven. Today we have the mind, which is a non-local field. It could be defined as a non-local field. Not being local, it has no space or time. It is not confined. Thereby, it can exist in the same place with some another mind simultaneously occupying the same space in this at the same time. Because those laws don't apply to the mind. When you talk about Afro-death experience, you could also be talking about an oneric experience, a dream. We can't say that the dream doesn't exist. How do you define that reality? Absolutely. No, the dream exists very, very much. I mean, in my mind, in fact, I happen to have had just a few days ago a lucid dream, meaning I was aware that I was dreaming. And, and since I have a passion for flying, the first thing I did is I, I jumped and I started flying. Now, I know dreams are extremely real, 
to me as the somebody who's having an experience and, and if you looked into my brain you would be able to see trace of, of what's going on in my mind during that dream what is so interesting about dreams is that they're disconnected from the reality around me exactly so instead of my brain mind interpreting what comes in from outside and, and creating a, a best guess as to what is out there which is really what brains do they create the best guesses as to what is out there given the pattern of sensory stimulation that my body is capable of receiving instead in oniric experiences the stimulus comes from inside it's neurons for some reason it that we comes, don't understand it comes from inside but most dreams you're dreaming emotions you're dreaming conflicts unresolved conflicts those conflicts are interpretations that the mind your mind, your, your ego, your id has to interpret that conflict. A conflict for you may not be the same as a conflict for someone else and you won't address it in the same way. Your mind is what? Your memories? What is your mind? Who, who makes you up? This is so, it's so beautiful. And I think dreams are such a beautiful field because they, they really make us face the difficulty of what does it mean also for a mind to be studying itself and how complicated that is. I think to answer your question, it depends. It depends on, I mean, or rather, there are various theories that will make very different points. Now, there's one theory, for example, that highlights exactly what you're saying. It's a theory according to which our dreams are nothing but a simulation of what could be going on in the world so that we can have a safe space to kind of exercise that. There's some evidence that most dreams tend to be negative in nature. And so based on that, somebody speculated that our dreams are really, you know, kind of a, a sandbox in which we can play and try stuff out and without getting hurt. Somebody pushed that one step further saying, no, 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 it's really about social simulation. So our dreams are nothing but a social simulation. And that's why, as you said, a large part of our dreams is sort of feelings and conflict and situation that we have to resolve and now so this is one end of the spectrum and this is the beauty of side the beauty of not knowing <laughs> at the other end of the spectrum and and there's an article that came out i believe in the lancet so one of the most prestigious um scientific journals today saying that it's really dreams are entirely epiphenomenal in fact they're the way in which your brain warms up after that it has that its temperature has gone down in deep sleep and in order to kind of wake you up and warm it up you, you start having this you know semi-random activity and as neurons sort of produce activity you have these you have this phenomenology you think you're you know, somewhere and you think you're having an experience which you are having in terms of it's very real that you're having the experience it just doesn't come from outside it comes from inside which is the most mysterious aspect and interesting but then again if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck it smells like a duck then it's got to be a duck <laughs> well yes and the extreme of that is that right now you and i are in a dream i mean it could be we could be could be or we could be as uh, a lot of people are wondering today could be could we just be in a simulation the real problem is that you and i would never be able to tell we don't have the instrument to tell if this is a uh, a simulation before i get back to the original thing about satisfaction and success What's come of this is that which we truly try to define it is always more and more undefinable. The more complicated it gets, the harder it is to actually pigeonhole it, give it a limited definition. This is it, black and white. 
the mind, the brain for us remains in a gray world. That's a that's a, I, I think partially that's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of it. Science has decided, look, this is what the mind is, and and we've taken this assumption and we're pushing it as far as we possibly can. And and someday, just much like what happened in physics, someone said, you know what, this the, the, great, thank you. You know, Newtonian physics. Oh, thank you. It worked so well. Predicts all sorts of stuff. But do you know what? Once you get to this other phenomenon, not good. We got to see it a different way. We got to see it a different way. So it, it's perfectly possible. And that brings me to success and satisfaction. Our society has taught us this satisfaction comes from, and I'm going to leave that open to you, and thereby defining success. We're beginning to learn now that it's not the case. It's success and satisfaction can be actually a state of mind. Are we satisfied with our lives? Are we, you know, do we feel successful? Here, I pass it to you. Um, yeah, there was this really interesting, uh, sorry, I'll make a really tiny parenthesis, but I think it really speaks to your point. There was a really interesting finding, I forget the details of it now, but it had found that for the most part, people happiness has very little to do with their situation, and it's more about their disposition. So I think it's exactly, so that's scientific proof of, uh, of that argument. Now, more broadly... And I underline disposition. Again, that's the mind. It is absolutely the mind. But of course, I would tell you, well, but the mind is nothing but your brain. <laughs> um, uh, now, regardless of that ontology, I think it's difficult, even for somebody... I think if I, if, I, if I wrote down today who I am and I brought it back to who I was when I was 14 or 15 and extremely confused about the world, I think I would say, that's amazing. I mean, I'll sign right here to get exactly all of this. This said, on a daily basis, the work that I do gets rejected from scientific journals at a, at a, at a frightening and, and, and very humbling a pace. I write grants that I think are wonderful ideas and it's sort of it's the next thing that I want to do in science and, and five or six people write back to me saying it sounds like a great idea but there's so many problems with this. And, and of course at that point you have a choice. At that point the choice is well am I going to you know, throw my arms up and say that's terrible I should give up and never be a scientist ever again. Or should I say okay these are great points you know how can I do it better. And personally, I find a lot of meaning in being in a state of uncertainty and then reducing that towards sort of more certainty, and more knowledge and more understanding. However, I do think that in today's society, we tend to view success not as a state and a process of what you're doing, and, and, but as a, as a staircase that gets you to a certain point. And that is terrible. Because first, you never get to that point. You don't get to a point and then get a, you know, a gold star. It just doesn't happen. So that is very dangerous. And I feel that's exactly where I was for many years. I went on a staircase straight to a goal. And then I kind of, I got to half of it. And, you know, I pat myself on the back. and like, oh, well done, man, my son. You're doing really well. Turns out I, I wasn't that much happier. And only after having that realization actually suffering a lot from it for it took me a couple of years to recover from that uh, suffering you know the, the symptoms of, of depression to realize that i was in love with a certain thing i was in love with science i was in love with i don't know this how do i get to know what it is 
And so every time that happens, now that is success. And it might not get me another grant. It might not get me a paper. It might not get me a better position. It might not get me to be the, you know, the head of some famous institution that people would recognize. I doubt I'm in anywhere close to the line for a Nobel Prize. Now, nonetheless, I'm doing what I love. Thereby, you're satisfied. I'm very satisfied. Frustrating as hell, because I feel like my identity is at stake all the time. And, and in success is in success. I mean, it's tough for me to, when people tell me, I'm sorry, your idea was really bad. It's just tough not to take it personally. <laughs> it's tough not to be upset, but that is just part of it. And probably if I didn't have days in which I felt that way, I wouldn't have days in which I felt really happy. So I just take this to be part of the process of falling down and getting up. And every time I get up, it's a little bit better. So you looked for satisfaction more than that definition of success. You're satisfied with the way you lead your life. It gives you the right amount of everything, the right amount of emotions, the right amount of whether they're, let's say, negative emotions, which I don't necessarily believe in negative emotions, but I believe, let's say, depression, sadness. Yes, but if I don't know sadness, how can I possibly know happiness? You know, and then I recognize happiness even more because I've experienced the sadness. It's a way of teaching. Yes, I feel the hardest part has been to step off from the continuous staircase of going up. And I feel like m most people today, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Oh, I will be a lawyer, I'll be a firefighter, I'll be a teacher, I'll be... We all get pushed on this escalator and, you know, I was in school, I'd get a, I'd get a B and, and the answer was, oh, sure, great, but you can do better. Okay, so then I get a B plus and oh, yeah. good. But can you, then I get an A plus and it was like, oh, can you, can you do it again? It's like, there's no end to that. If you're stuck in there, that's a staircase that never ends. And it's, it's profoundly, you might reach what people describe as success, but I can't see that being satisfying in any way. Also because, when are you on the last point? You know, on the very last day, every, the rest of your life, has been spent going up for that one last day. That's, that's meaningless. I try to find satisfaction, and I, I think I do find satisfaction today in much smaller things. I'll give you one example. Okay, I'm a scientist. I'm at what I would say, describe as you know, a very good institution. There's better, obviously, there's worse, but I'm, a, I'm at a very good institution. I obviously get a very good salary. Now, there's way better, but there's also way worse. It's not like I'm at the top of anything. And I spent my Sunday, after appropriately thanking uh, my wife for being an amazing mother and, and partner, since it was Mother's Day. After that, I went and took the kids to a science fair of uh, middle schoolers. And my job was really simple. I just had to walk through. So these are middle schoolers that did small science projects, and I was one of the judges. Talking to these children who had done their very first experiment and who you know, were puzzled, were happy, were sort of... Had all, that was one of the most satisfying things I've done this month. As a university professor, and I think I have a lot of things that are really wonderful, but that was one of them. I loved it. I left it, and I loved it. Now... Nobody told me that was one of the things that I should have seen in success. Nobody ever told me that. I, I'm, I'm lucky that I found what, it. What you found is satisfaction, which leads you to what a lot of books today are writing about is gratitude. Gratitude. You know, it's always a thing. You have to be, you know, 
you have to have gratitude for that which you have that will bring you to the next level of gratitude so you you're constantly getting you're underlying this in your definition of satisfaction which you're giving more importance to the satisfaction than to the actual success because who defines success and success is extremely uh, you're right it's it's tough to, it's also extremely local there, there's this one thing that happened to me very early on uh, in my career at at UCLA I was out for lunch with a now very good friend and he just happens to be in a different field of psychology than me and he was very excited because this 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 professor was coming to visit and give a talk and so he sort of he conveyed a lot of excitement he's how oh, are you gonna go you know do you know him and I have to confess that I said I have no, I have no idea who this person is. Now, this was Harvard professor, one of the most revered uh, person in that particular field. So definitely what I think people would say, it doesn't get more success. I mean, it doesn't get more successful than being at a, you know, at a university such as Harvard and being extremely recognized for decades of great work. I had no idea who this person was. Now, of course, I live under a rock, probably. But this tells you success is... Success is local. Gratification is subjective. I'm the only one that can define what gratify, what I'm going to be happy for, thankful for. It's mine. Success, on the other hand, tends to be defined by others if I'm successful. That power goes to other people to give me pleasure. So I have to hear someone say to me, I'm successful, to define myself as successful. I don't need someone to tell me I'm thankful. I don't need someone to tell me I like this. You know, that's all me. That's all on my mind, okay, that I like something. So now I'm in control. You're, you're relinquishing to others power uh, over you. Now, I have to say, I, I, you know, in, in the shift that I had, I, that, that was not necessarily one of the components. But, but yeah, framed this way, absolutely. I mean, who knows? Maybe that is part also of, of why there, there's a rise today in sort of mental health crisis. But there's a lot of relinquishing of self-image to others and sort of that well, seems very at, dangerous look at our society i mean we're defined by what we do but we're always defined by others what we do and we accept those definitions if we speak italian then we must be italian defined by others but then you could speak italian and not be from italy you know you just learned the language very well but people will define us constantly uh doctor lawyer to others telling us here's a piece of paper that says you're a lawyer. Here's a piece of paper saying that you're a scientist. When there was a time where you didn't need that recognition by others. I can do this. I can do this, this operation. I can do, defend this client in court. You know, I have the knowledge of the law to be able to do this. Let the judge decide if I'm good enough or not. You know, in whether I win or lose the case. We're defined by others. Our mind should have the power to be free of the definition of others. That's what we hear. Now, I go back to, and I go back to, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore, I am. Do you think that's still valid today? I think, therefore, I am. Or should it be more, I am that I am? <laughs> I think it should be more, gnozzi sauton, know thyself. Uh, I, think, I think that would be, would be, something that I would want more people to, know make that to make treasure of. Yes, there's this wonderful quote, I think it was Warren Buffett, who said that he realized early in life that there were 
two kinds of people, broadly speaking, or rather there were two tendencies. Some people have what he called an external scorecard and, and other people had an internal scorecard. And he realized that he had an internal one. I would say that we, we all have both. I mean, don't get me wrong. I get great pleasure when people introduce me and say, oh, here's Professor Monty from this university and he's done all these things. I, I get great pleasure. I mean, it's, sure. obviously it, it makes, it gives me dopamine. I, I feel good. And so I completely understand why that's the tendency. It makes us feel good. In fact, my brain makes me feel good. It's not like I have a choice. But it's a double-edged sword. It's a double-edged sword. Because you feel good, but then you risk doing that thing again, giving too much power to them because they make you feel good. And then you're addicted, like any other addiction. It's based on the same neural circuitry. And then you're stuck because that's what you have. On the other hand, of course, and that's the difficulty to develop also, not only, but also an internal scorecard. That's what I mean by know thyself. You know, you know, you know, you know what you love. You know what makes you happy. You know, you know who you are. You, you know what, what, what makes you you. You don't need to see it reflected from others to say, oh, I'm this famous person because that person recognized me in the street. Knowing others is wisdom. Knowing thyself is enlightenment. That's right. I agree with that. Dr. Martin. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, it's been our pleasure, really. I hope to see you again on this podcast. Thank you so much for coming and uh, talking to us about something as complicated and difficult to understand as the brain, the mind, and above all, knowing thyself. Wonderful having you. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Nobody's Podcast. We hope our guest story today has inspired you to live your dreams and achieve success on your own terms. Tune in next time as we continue this journey of empowerment and positive change. Dream big, work hard, and go live the life you've always imagined. This is Nobody's Podcast, signing off.